0: This is a Reconstructionist Radio Production. Please visit kuiper.org to download or purchase this book. The Christian Philosophy of Education Explained 2010, Stephen C. Perks Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England Narrated by Nathan F. Conkey Chapter 6 Education and Civilization to deny the covenantal nature of man's life and his dominion over the world is to dehumanise mankind. As God's vicegerent and thus lord over the earth, man is above all other creatures. Unlike the animals, man is made of the earth physically, but his spirit is from God. That is to say, he is created in the image of God. That image consists in a moral nature created for fellowship with God and dominion over the earth. To deny this necessarily moral and dominical nature of man is to dehumanize him, since it is to strip him of all that properly constitutes the image of God in man. Hence, in his futile and of course impossible attempt to escape from God and from the moral nature of his being, man resorts to all manner of degraded and perverse practices he attempts to degrade himself to the level of the animals, though, in so doing, he goes one better and resorts to practices which are not to be found even among the animals, the pagan revival. Quite logically, therefore, given its anti-theistic worldview, Satanism proclaims, as its most fundamental doctrine, that man is no different from, and thus no higher than, the animals. At least, this is what Satanism claims, and doubtless many believe. Our age has demonstrated the outworking of this principle in many ways, and on many levels, and by many diverse groups, by no means all, or even most of which, which indeed would, or indeed could, self-consciously acknowledge their commitment to the principles of Satanism. These range from the degraded and bestial practices of sexual perversion, philosophical and ideological stance of the green and ecology movements, the neo-paganism of the New Age movement, and the animal rights people who have resorted to the anti-human tactics of terrorism in an attempt to make their point and enforce their ideology on society. All this is the natural outworking of fallen man's desire to rid himself of his creator. Since man's life is inextricably commonantal, and therefore moral in nature, man being created in God's image Man attempts to defy and deny God by overturning the God-ordained and thus natural order of creation and by denying his own moral nature. And in doing so, he necessarily defaces his own humanity. This is no digression from the point at issue, viz. education, for we must not be unaware of the current ability of most of the above-mentioned groups, including sexual perverts, and the Green, New Age and animal rights movements, as well as humanism in general, to impose their viewpoints through the educational establishment. Our society is experiencing a very real return to paganism, the consequences of which will be far-reaching in our own lives, but even more so for the lives of our children and grandchildren. We must not underestimate the strategic importance of the educational establishment In this re paganisation of society, it is not simply that the schools, colleges, and universities of our land are not immune to the influence of neo paganism, they are essential to the transmission of a culture's worldview. And, if the culture is to be captured by neo paganism, it is these institutions which must be in the vanguard. Capture the schools and colleges, and you will have control of the next generation through the formation of its religious outlook and philosophy of life. It will hardly be denied that humanism has captured most of our educational institutions, whether state or private, secular or religious, but many may be unaware of the degree to which groups such as the Green Movement, animal rights and New Age people, and even the homosexual lobby to some extent, are attempting, and with no little success, to infiltrate and influence the educational institutions of our land. It has been pointed out by teachers within the state system that such groups are increasingly seeking to offer their educational services to schools by providing courses for children and training for staff in their particular perspective. These teachers represent probably the few who have recognised this influence for what it is and rejected it. Many more far less aware of the issues involved, are doubtless taken in by these groups, or even embrace their perspective wholeheartedly. Such groups are able to exercise a subliminal influence on our culture through the services they offer to schools, as well as through the ongoing teaching work of those committed to their perspective within the state system. Increasingly, representation of such views in the media helps to soften up society, and leads to a general growth in their acceptance. And this in turn means that there is far less resistance from within the educational system to the influence of these groups. It is important that we understand the kind of influences which have helped to form and inform such ideologies as those of the Green and New Age movements. Many people today accept at least some aspects of the Green and New Age agenda though often acceptance of the worldview they represent is subliminal. Nevertheless, the general acceptance of these views is damaging to our culture and to our children in that they help to form a worldview which is essentially pagan in nature. The degree to which the old pre-Christian religion has enjoyed a revival in this century has influenced these movements is not generally appreciated. The following quotation should serve to illustrate this. People today are at last beginning to realise the consequences of becoming what Dion Fortune called Orphaned of the Great Mother. We are beginning to look at what has happened and is happening to our planet. It has at least registered upon us that whatever utopias are built upon, politicians' promises. If the planet itself is ruined, such promises can be nothing but wind-blown dust. Our fate is bound up with that of Mother Earth whose children we are, hence the emergence of what has come to be called green politics. This, in my opinion, is another indication of the oncoming, of the oncoming of the Aquarian Age. It is the time when we must understand and use the past in order to build upon it for the future. The old religion must look forward also and continue its evolution. If it does so, it can play a vital role in the new age. Indeed, paganism in various forms is already beginning to do this. This quotation is taken from a book called Witchcraft, a tradition renewed. There are fundamental areas of common ground between witchcraft, or the old religion, as the authors of this book like to call it, and modern Green and New Age movements. Indeed, the revival of the pagan outlook generally has been a stimulus to the growth of the Green and New Age movements. Furthermore, whereas witchcraft was for centuries a faith that was practised secretly due to the influence of the church and of Christian culture generally, it is today coming out into the open more and more, along with other practices which were endemic in pagan antiquity, such as homosexual and bisexual practices. The authors cite the present situation as a reason for being more open, There will certainly be those who will condemn John and myself for saying too much, giving away secrets and so on. However, I feel that we have to recognise the changing times and be ready, if necessary, to change with them. The vital role that witchcraft is playing in the birth of the New Age is of sufficient importance for the authors to ask those who find this book disturbing to consider this aspect of the matter even if we detest them, simply because of the importance it will play in the birth of the new age, in helping us return to the veneration of Mother Nature, Gaia, the Magna Mater, Mother Earth, call her what you will for she is, if you like, the intelligence behind nature, which is, as it originally was, conceived of as feminine. We are also told that Her son and consort is the Old Horned One, whom our primitive ancestors depicted on the walls of their cave sanctuaries. One might be tempted to laugh at all this, were it not for the fact that such beliefs are becoming more popular in our society. The Old Religion is once again coming out of hiding to some degree, and, although it is not exactly evangelical in its posture, it is certainly more militant in its demand for toleration. We are at an important turning point in human history, we are told, and this is the changeover from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius. Thus, those of us who have preserved the knowledge that is known as occult, a word meaning simply hidden, now need to make use of that knowledge in a constructive way. Moreover, we have to make a stand against ignorance and bigotry, and for the recognition of our old faith as a legitimate religion. It is unlikely that we shall have a revival of witchcraft practiced on a regular basis by any more than a few enthusiasts. But many of the basic religious and philosophical ideas and presuppositions underpinning it, which were common to ancient paganism, and indeed to all forms of paganism, are already widely accepted in our culture. Popular Science, an absurd combination of scientific speculation, media hype and badly interpreted statistics, has now picked up on many of these ideas, and, by baptising them with pseudo-scientific jargon, given them the appearance of respectability. As a result, they now represent a significant component of Western society's eclectic worldview, and play an increasingly prominent role in the formation of political ideologies. In an article entitled, The Green Man, The Reemergence of a Vital Spirit Father Earth, published in November 1990 in World Magazine, a BBC publication, we are informed that there is no doubt that the Green Man, the dynamic male counterpart to Mother Nature, is once again a force to be reckoned with, traditionally connected with whatever is most vital in a particular period, fertility in pagan times, Creativity in Romanesque and Gothic times, and learning in the Middle Ages, today he coincides with the growing awareness of a need for balance between us and our environment. According to Julian Enriquez, the Green Man is telling us something about our human relationship with the natural world. As an icon embodying ancient Celtic roots, he appears to validate the modern-day quest for lifestyles which are more Natural than our present eco destructive and materialistic ones. Indeed, the Norwegian Green Party have focused their anti acid rain campaign on an image of the green man as the protector of the forests. Co author William Anderson, also the author of a book entitled Green Man, the Architect of Our Oneness with the Earth, concludes Today we are learning to see Earth once more as the great goddess, as Gaia, and he. Her son, her lover and her guardian returns to help us, to warn us and to face us with the impossible challenges of living in harmony with nature. The appearance of this article coincided with the BBC Omnibus film on the Green Man and a fictional television series about the Green Man. The British Broadcasting Company is certainly no backstreet occult publishing house and World Magazine is one of the better quality general interest magazines on sale in Britain. Both the magazine article and the films are an indication of the extent to which such ideas are beginning to filter through into modern Western culture. The basic premise behind all of this, and behind the Green and New Age movements, etc., is that nature is normative. Indeed, nature is God, and man, if he is to find his true place in the order of things, must recognise and submit to this. Man must cease from acting as lord over nature, the rule assigned to him in the Bible, and submit to the lordship of Mother Earth. Man is not seen as created by a transcendent god in his image to rule over the earth, but simply as another part of the pantheistic god, nature, Gaia, or whatever modern man calls it. If the planet is to survive, and man with it, though one cannot help thinking that the latter is not part of the agenda of the animal rights groups, then he must submit to the rule of an untamed mother nature as normative. He must accept her yoke and submission to the elements of nature, rather than take up his proper, God-given role as lord over the earth. The basic idea is that man has vaunted himself above his position, and his pride and arrogance has brought the natural world to ruin through over-exploitation of the earth's resources, etc. Man's lordship over the earth is seen as harmful and destructive of the natural order. Man's sin is that he has interfered with nature. We must restore the balance, therefore, and this means returning to the worship of Mother Nature and the acceptance of our position in the pagan order of things. The Christian perspective. We now see the radical difference between the pagan worldview and that of orthodox Christianity. The pagan view of nature and man's place is utterly idolatrous. Man indeed has vaunted himself above his position, but he has done this by claiming a kind of divinity and usurping the authority of God, not by claiming lordship over the earth. Man is lord over the earth under God. That is his rightful position in the divine order of things. His lordship over the earth is legitimate when he submits to God. But by vaunting himself above God and his authority, he has brought himself and the natural world into a state of disorder. Man is now under the dominion of sin, which is disobedience to God, and he is redeemed in Jesus Christ, and the earth itself is under the curse of God as a result of his sin. Of course, sin leads men to abuse God's creation. But the answer to this is not man's subjugation to nature since this is the result of sin. The Christian answer to man's abuse of the creation is subjection to God and the restoration of man's dominion over nature in Jesus Christ. In Christ, man once again submits to God and therefore godly dominion over the earth again becomes normative for man and for the natural world. Rather than abusing the world, the Christian seeks, or at least should seek, to exploit it to the glory of God and the betterment of mankind. This involves the subjugation and control of the natural world, animate and inanimate. Man is not simply another animal, nor an insignificant part of nature who must learn to live harmoniously with nature if he and the earth are to survive. He is the Lord of the earth, and if the earth is to survive, he must begin to exercise that lordship in obedience to God, and in conformity with his covenant law. Man's dominion over the earth certainly cannot be achieved by his degrading himself to the level of the animals, but by ruling over the earth and the animals and subjecting them to himself as their lord. Since this is what God created man for, man's dominion and mastery over the earth is a major aspect of God's purpose for mankind, but it can only be achieved successfully as man subjects himself to God and seeks that dominion in obedience to his law. This is because the covenant that God has established with mankind and which defines man's existence governs the whole of man's life, thoughts and actions. It governs not only man's vertical relationship to his creator, but also his horizontal relationship to the created order, to the world of men and things. Thus... A break in the vertical relationship between God and man through man's sin and rebellion against God leads to a perverting and overturning of the horizontal relationship between man and the world in which he lives. This is why all forms of paganism lead to the subjugation of man to the world around him, rather than to the subjecting of the world to the rule of man. Paganism, in all its forms involves, indeed, is based upon the worship of the creation rather than the Creator, and that which man worships, he puts himself in subjection to. He thus becomes the slave to that which he worships. Worship of the natural world, therefore, leads to man's bondage to the elements of nature, and therefore to the death of man, and the death of civilization. Whenever man rejects allegiance and service to his Creator, and attempts to cast away God's binding covenant, he subject himself to some aspect of the created order as the governing principle of life, rather than to the infallible word of God. All such rebellion, religious language and symbolism, or lack of it, is a return to paganism, and its end is the enslavement of man to the creation. This is evident in such diverse forms of paganism as Marxist communism on the one hand, which claims scientific status through its appropriation of the language of economics and sociology, and the pagan religions and mystic cults of the ancient world, so evidently revived in the New Age movement of today, on the other. Classical Paganism As an illustration of the power and the devastating effects of fallen man's bondage to the created order, we shall look briefly at one classic example of such paganism. Hinduism. The fact that Hinduism has been practiced for so long and is so ingrained in the culture of the Indian subcontinent affords a perspicuous and revealing instance of the effects of paganism on both human society and the natural world, and a sobering glimpse of man's future under the influence of the neo-pagan revival. For the Hindu, the cow is sacred, as well as other animals such as the monkey. These animals roam freely over the land and destroy valuable crops grown for human consumption. But they are considered sacred, and therefore Hindus refuse to drive them away from their crops for fear of their gods. The Hindus refuse to take dominion over the world and over the animals that roam the earth, and hence their crop production is irrational. The result is that crops desperately needed for human survival are destroyed and consumed by animals. The problem is far greater than simply the veneration of the cow, however. Professor P.T. Bower, Britain's leading development economist, states the matter clearly. A large proportion of the Indian population object to the killing of animals. Besides its immediate and direct effects on the food supply, this attitude obviously restricts the scope of animal husbandry, severely circumscribes agricultural operations and obstructs progress in agriculture. An extreme example is that of the Jains, a considerable sect, adherents of which will not knowingly take any form of animal life, even that of the insects and bacteria. They object to the killing of locusts, to the use of insecticides, and even to such measures as the chlorination of water designed to kill the agents agents or carriers of cholera, typhoid or malaria, and other fatal or debilitating diseases of people livestock and vegetation. Another serious effect of this idolatrous attitude to the natural world can be seen in the fact that rats at the docks consume up to 50% of India's annual food imports. The Hindu thus becomes enslaved to the world around him and he is at its mercy. And this is because he worships the creator rather than the creator and refuses to act in obedience to his creator and to take and take dominion over the earth, and over the and over the animals. He is thus ruled by the world which he was given to rule over. Having made gods of his environment, and the animals that God has commanded him to subjugate, to subjugate for his own advancement and advantage in the service of God, he has become subject himself to his environment. His life is governed by a servile relationship to the natural world, rather than the natural world being utilised in a godly and productive fashion for his own benefit and the benefit of mankind and the animal kingdom. Under the British Raj, India was a net exporter of food. Independence brought a drastic change, as can be seen from the title of an official document published in 1959 called India's Food Crisis. P.T. Bauer has pointed out that even in the favourable year of 1958-1959, to 1959, there were still food riots, while in 1957-58 acute shortages were widespread. Legislation prohibiting the slaughter and sale of cattle and the sale and transportation of beef products in any form was passed in 1956. This is institutionalised paganism, and its end is the subjugation of man to the natural world with all the poverty, social backwardness and human misery associated with it. Such effects are always to be found in the natural outworking of paganism. Hinduism, like all other pagan religions, is the overturning of God's created order and of man's God-ordained place in it, and thus satanic in its nature and effects. Man, who should be lord over the earth, is enslaved to the natural world, which is allowed to run wild and thus at its mercy, rather than taming it as God intended him to do. All things suffer under such a religion. Man suffers. He lives in poverty and a state of semi-starvation through under and management of the resources available to him. The natural world, which was created for man's stewardship, and that which is normative only under his management, becomes a semi-wilderness and fails to achieve its full potential since this also is dependent on the godly exploitation and management of its resources by mankind. Genesis 2.15 The effects of paganism and Christianity contrasted. Whenever and wherever man refuses to take godly dominion over the earth, according to God's revealed covenant law, human bondage and suffering is the result. When man refuses to be the servant of God, and as a result lord over the earth, He makes himself the servant of the creation, rather than of the creator, and thus comes under bondage to the natural world. Thus, men starve to death in a world of plenty, created by a God of bounty. And this is because man refuses to live under God and his law. Where there is space and food enough in this world for all who now live, or ever will live on it, if only a man will use the earth productively and obediently, in accordance with God's revealed word. But fallen man would live in autonomy from God and die, rather than serve the God of creation and live. As God's servant, man stands in the privileged position of being God's vicegerent over the earth, and thus, Lord of the natural world. As a rebel against God, he enslaves himself to the world he was meant to rule over. Sin, rebellion against God, overturned the created order, not only between man and his Creator, but also between man and his environment genesis three seventeen to nineteen This is because the covenant that God has established with mankind is all-embracing. It defines not only man's relationship to God but also, as we have already seen, his proper relationship to the world around him. Thus, to break the covenant and rebel against it is to pervert and destroy. Not only man's relationship with the Creator, but also his proper, God-ordained relationship with the creation. When man rejects his Creator as Lord and Sovereign, and idolises some aspect of the created order, instead, he ceases to be God's legitimate vicegerent and Lord over the natural world. His dominion turns into domination of some men over others. His idolatry leads to the subjugation of all men to the created order. The power of sin over mankind, its ability to enslave mankind, is thus very real and the cause of the wretched conditions and human misery prevalent in so much of the world. This is why it is only as the Christian religion has advanced over the last 2,000 years and especially since the Reformation that starvation, disease, human misery and suffering as well as tyranny and material slavery have been overcome to any significant degree, for Christianity restores man's relationship with God and thus his proper relationship with the created order. The parts of the world where such slavery and bondage is still great are those where Christianity has had least influence. Truly, the Christian faith has brought freedom and release to a world which was in bondage to paganism and all the misery and death that goes with it. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John 8.36 The natural order The humanist wants to be free from God, but that means the enslaving of men. The Green Movement, animal rights, people, etc., want the natural world to be free from man's rule and dominion over it, but that means that man is at the mercy of nature and thus in bondage to it. Thus, freedom and servitude for man are not absolutes which he can or must choose between. Man cannot escape his creaturely limitations and hence can never be totally free in the sense that he can determine his own destiny without reference to the God who created him and the creation he is part of and in which he finds his true purpose and meaning. The question facing man is therefore not whether he should choose freedom on the one hand or servitude on the other. Servitude, in one form or another, is an inescapable fact of life for man. But whom shall he serve? And in what does his true freedom, his original God-ordained freedom, consist? The humanists, Green Movement and New Age people, want man to be free from God and his law so that they can determine for themselves what constitutes man's true nature and place in the world. They want to recreate themselves and the world around them according to their own images and idols. But this brings them into bondage in one form or another to the world or the aspects of it which they have idolised. This is completely contrary to the God-created order of life and the creation mandate that God has given man. Man is to rule over nature and serve God thereby. His true freedom consists in the fulfilling of his God-created purpose in life, and this is only possible as he submits to God in obedience to his word. To serve the living God is the only true freedom man can know. To rebel against God means bondage and slavery for man. The end of humanism, and all other forms of paganism, including the Green and New Age movements, etc., is the subjugation of man to the world around him the enslaving of men to each other and to the elements of nature, and hence the death of man and the destruction of civilization. For nature is not normative. It is not the natural God-ordained order of things. Nature is wild and untamed without man to rule over it. It was never created to be left to itself, but for man to manage it. A wilderness is the result of man's abdication of his responsibility to rule over the earth. And in a wilderness, man cannot survive. He must starve. The natural order of things, the God-ordained order, is for man to rule over nature, to take dominion over the earth and over the animals. His true purpose, and thus his happiness and prosperity, can only be found in obedience to that calling. Since that is God's will for him, and his duty to God, It is vitally important, therefore, that Christians proclaim the moral and covenantal nature of human life and to work to develop an educational philosophy, anthropology and ethics which is based on that covenant at all points. The green and ecology movements have so far waged a successful propaganda war and indeed some elements of what they say are correct since man should steward the earth responsibly and look after it. But the underlying philosophy is anti-theistic, anti-covenantal and thus is anti-human because it is pro-nature in the sense that nature is seen as normative. Christians must make it clear that this is not so. Man's dominion over the earth under God is normative. That is to say, the original God-ordained order of things, not his subjugation to it. Subjugation to the natural world means death for man. And as the pagan worldview is promoted and gains credence in our society and is passed on to future generations through the educational system, our civilization will come under bondage to the elements of nature, and it will become pagan in every sense, and judgment and death will be its just reward. Religion and Civilization A civilization's culture is clearly an outworking of its basic religious presuppositions. Culture is religion externalized. Civilization is thus religiously determined, as Henry Van Til argued in his book The Calvinistic Concept of Culture. In the case of India, as we have already seen, bears ample testimony to this truth. Examples of backward civilization based on pagan religious worldviews could be multiplied throughout the world. By contrast, the overriding influence in the West historically has been the Christian religion. Western civilization and culture has largely been an outworking of Christian ideals and influences. This is not to say that there have not been other influences upon the West from outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition. There have been, in particular, influences from the Greco-Roman world, which have helped to shape Western culture. But even these influences have not appeared in the West stark naked in their original form but have themselves been modified and moulded in accordance with Christian beliefs throughout the history of the West. On the whole, Western culture has been influenced by a strong Christian understanding of the nature and meaning of life. Thus, democracy, which is not a peculiarly Christian idea, became, in the West, a particular kind of democracy, heavily informed by Christian principles and ideals. This is demonstrated by the fact that virtually all attempts by modern Western governments to implant Western democratic ideals into non-Christian cultures have failed miserably. Western-style democracy simply breaks down in pagan cultures because they do not have the basic Christian ideals of due process of law, freedom, morality, justice, compassion and mercy, etc., which have characterised Western culture under the influence of Christianity and which are thus essential to the existence of a stable democratic system of the type found in the West. It has taken over a millennium for the Western democratic process to develop into its modern form. It is simply not realistic to expect it to take root overnight in a pagan culture which has not yet been emancipated from the worship of the natural world. Indeed, even India in spite of the fact that it is the largest democracy in the world and benefited greatly from the civilising influence of the British Raj in the last century, has not been able to pull itself into the 20th century after the pattern of Western culture and achieve the standard of living enjoyed by Western society today. In some respects, it has regressed, and this is largely due to the prevailing religious culture. Western civilization After the Reformation What has been said above regarding the dominant influence of Christianity in Western culture has been particularly relevant since the Reformation. As a result of the Reformation, the Bible was translated into the vernacular of the Protestant nations. This led to a far greater influence of Christian principles and ideals in Protestant Europe. The Reformation was the great watershed in the transition of Western culture from feudalism to modern civilization. The Protestant faith placed a high priority on understanding the faith, and thus on teaching the faith to the people. Hence the translation of the Bible into the vernacular. By contrast, Roman Catholicism encouraged the people to place their trust in the church and its and in its professional priests, and to rest in these as the means of salvation. Understanding the faith did not have the same importance. What counted was the mass, in effect a magical rite, and the merit of the saints, etc. The Protestant faith placed the emphasis back on the biblical principles of grace operating through personal faith. This demanded understanding on the part of the believer. This emphasis on personal faith and understanding, in contrast to the Roman Catholic reliance on the church in which understanding the faith was seen as the duty of the priests and discouraged among the laity, accounts, in large measure, for the great transformation in Protestant European culture after the Reformation. The rationalisation of life, in many ways, was the result. Max Weber's thesis concerning the rationalisation of economic enterprise after the Reformation, due to the development of a distinctly Protestant understanding of the calling, gives us an example of the kind of change this produced in the area of work ethics and economics. In England, The result in this shift of emphasis from the church and its professional priesthood to the Protestant principle of the priesthood of all believers, with the concomitant necessity that all believers be taught to understand their duty to God and their calling in the world as a means of rendering a rational service to God, Romans 12.1, was the conversion of the nation and the transformation of society. Men were discouraged from wallowing in ignorance and trusting in the superstitions and magical rites of the Roman Catholic Church for salvation. They were encouraged instead to understand the faith and to live and act in the light of that understanding in every part of their lives. Sacerdotalism and sacramentalism were no longer considered the content of Christian religion. The Church and its role, even its nature, were demythologized, and teaching Replaced the performance of magical rites as the Church's duty before God and responsibility to the people. There was thus a fundamental shift in the understanding of the Church's role. Under Roman Catholicism, the Church embraced much of paganism, though it was heavily syncretized with the Roman Catholic understanding of the Christian faith. In the Roman Catholic Church, salvation was understood to be administered to the lay members of the Church by the magical manipulation of a professional priesthood. Protestantism, instead, turned to teaching the faith to the people so that they might shoulder their responsibilities in the world as God's people, bringing his word to bear on all aspects of their life. This led to the transformation of life and culture in all areas. Since Christian faith is relevant to the whole of life and an understanding of man's calling and duty in terms of the purpose of God and extended to the whole of life, This educational emphasis of the Reformation had an immense effect on the whole of Protestant culture. It went beyond the limits of religious education in the narrower sense, or theological education, to embrace the whole of life and society. Furthermore, the world is God's creation and a revelation of his eternal power and Godhead, and therefore to be understood by the believer no less than God's revelation of himself in Scripture. Or properly, the Protestant view was that the natural world was to be understood through the teaching of Scripture. In this way, all things were brought under the authority of God's word and the rule of Christ for the glory of God. The effect of this revival of biblical Christianity was the birth of modern Western society, a renewed Christian civilization characterized by the growth of learning and science, exploration and world mission, social amelioration, etc., this transformation of Western civilization was brought about by the opening up of men's minds to the world around them and their place and duty in it as men with a calling to bring all things into obedience to God's word. Protestants opened schools and colleges, which challenged the quality and superiority of even the old established universities, especially in terms of applied learning, science and technology. It's lagged behind in the old universities for many years. Protestant education was a major fact in the transformation of our nation from a feudal society to a modern industrial civilization. Our civilization is, or at least has been, largely a Christian civilization, and a Christian civilization can only take root and flourish where men are taught to understand the Christian faith and its implications for the whole of life and culture. Christian civilization necessitates a Christian world and life view and the working out of that world view in the totality of life, both on the individual and on the societal levels. Medieval Christendom was vitiated in this respect due to the virtual denial of the priesthood of all believers and its limiting of the nature of Christian priesthood to the ecclesiastical and theological spheres. The sharp contrast between the sacred and the secular which characterised medieval Christendom meant that the application of God's word to much of life was neglected. Secular callings were not seen as priestly callings, and thus the dominant influence of Christian principles in those spheres was missing. This was so among academic disciplines also. Philosophy, for instance, despite the fact that it was the domain of the medieval church, was seen as a discipline governed by neutral rational principles. The intellect was deemed to be unfallen essentially, and thus, instead of subjecting all philosophical thought to the authority of God's word, the idea of autonomous human rationality was accepted, and natural theology and Aristotelian philosophy dominated the discipline. The influence of the church was certainly very great upon society, but the influence of the Christian faith was limited in comparison to post-Reformation Europe, since its sphere of operation was seen as being almost exclusively ecclesiastical. Christian culture, therefore, failed to develop properly. Instead, there was regression, and then regression turned to oppression, and Roman Catholic tyranny developed as the Church became increasingly corrupt. Only after the Reformation was Western society able to develop into a more consistently Christian culture, with the Protestant understanding of the calling and the redemption of all spheres of life and activity as a means of serving God, according to his word, Society experienced a practical outworking of the Christian faith, which led to greater progress across the whole spectrum of human life and activity, not the least of which was social and economic amelioration on a grand scale. The emphasis that the Reformation Church placed on understanding and education and on man's divine calling in the world played an important role in this process, and the growth of education generally was also a result of it contemporary Western culture. Today, we have largely, though not yet totally, abandoned that Christian religion as the basis of our way of life, our culture. It survives nominally in our institutions because tradition dies hard, but as an animating cultural force, it is gone. Unfortunately, the church, due to the dominating influences of pietism and escapism, among the Reformed and Evangelical churches, and liberalism in the larger Protestant denominations, has provided no resistance to the secularizing influences of modern humanism. Christian education has virtually ceased in the church and has been handed over lock, stock, and barrel to the secular humanist state. In all but a few cosmetic details, Church of England schools, for instance, are simply state schools with virtually no distinctive Christian philosophy or practice. In the education they provide. Christian civilization has declined as secular humanism has advanced in this way. Slowly but surely in one area after another, the church has surrendered to the humanist hordes. First it surrendered the sovereignty of God, then history, then morality, and now it is on the brink of surrendering the very faith itself. Indeed, in most large denominational colleges it has already done so. The progression is logical once God's sovereign jurisdiction over man's life is denied. The old Enlightenment humanism itself, which at least played lip service to the Christian faith, is now in decline, and in its place, a more virulent and self-conscious neo-paganism is beginning to dominate our culture. It is not uncommon today to hear Church of England Ordinance express doubts as to the exclusive validity of the Christian faith and pagan religions are entertained as valid ways of seeking God, etc. In large measure, these developments can be traced to the decline of Christian education in our land at all levels, in the home, in schools, and at college and university. In the light of this fact, the provision of Christian education must surely be seen as one of the main tasks to be undertaken by the Christian Church today in its commission to bring the nation under the discipline of Christ. Matthew 28, 19-20 Without a specifically Christian philosophy and practice of education, the nation will not ultimately be disciplined to Christ. Education is of central significance in any culture. The religious principles underpinning the prevailing philosophy of education in any society will determine that society's worldview Education is of central importance in the transmission of a civilization's understanding of the nature and meaning of life to the next generation, and thus for the preservation of that civilization's way of life. Without a specifically Christian philosophy and practice of education as a means of transmitting our way of life to our children, Christian civilization will be extinguished in our land within the next within the next few generations. It is impossible to Christianize a culture without providing an education for that culture which is based on a Christian worldview. Christian civilization necessitates Christian education at every level and in every field, at home, church, school and college. Conclusion It is through the education of our children that our worldview is passed on to future generations and our civilization thereby preserved. Christians, therefore, have a very simple choice. Either they educate their children in terms of godly learning and discipline and a Christian worldview, a covenantal, dominion-orientated worldview, and thereby help to build and preserve Christian civilization, or they hand over the education of their children to pagans who will educate them in terms of ungodly learning and discipline and a pagan worldview, and thereby help to build a pagan civilization which will enslave their children to the world they are called to rule over. To quote Rushduni again, Man creates, by the totality of his life and actions, a culture. It is the visible form of his faith and life. The question therefore is, what kind of culture will he produce? Either we educate our children in terms of a Christian culture, or we hand them over to be educated humanists as pagans. Our actions in this matter will help to determine and shape the culture of the next generation. Either we build in terms of the Christian faith or we destroy the Christian culture our forefathers built. He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. Matthew twelve thirty. 30 Education is the single most important factor in the preservation of a society's culture. On the education of our children, the future of our civilization hangs. It is the Christian's duty to educate his children in the Christian faith for dominion, for the shouldering of man's creation mandate, to bring the whole earth into subjection to himself as God's steward and vicegerent on earth, and thus into subjection to God and his word. This necessitates a christian culture and the building of christian civilization and this in turn necessitates a christian covenantal dominion oriented philosophy and practice of education
1: the reconstructionist radio podcast network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology our desire is not simply that you consume our shows but that you also live out your faith in every area of life